WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Banning trans students from sports, absentee mail-in voting restricted, plus changes to the school curriculum bill, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending January 28, 2022. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This week, protests erupted in the Indiana House chamber following a committee's approval of a bill restricting transgender girls' access to school sports. The vote came after hours of testimony from Hoosiers who mostly opposed the measure. The legislation would prohibit transgender girls from joining girls' school sports teams. Republican Representative Michelle Davis is its author. The purpose of this bill is to maintain fair competition in girls' sports. But many opposed to the bill say it's another way to discriminate against an especially vulnerable group of children. Chris Paulson from Indiana Youth Group joined several others who pointed out the mental health risks transgender youth face, especially when their identity is targeted by politicians. The Trevor Project's 2021 survey of nearly 35,000 youth ages 13 to 24 shows that more than 50 percent of transgender youth have seriously considered suicide in the past year. The bill passed the full House Thursday. What problem is this bill solving? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers. And Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, the IHSAA said they already have a process in place to deal with this issue, do they not? Oh, they do, and it's a very good process, as a matter of fact. I mean, this, is, this isn't about fairness, it's about hatred. And uh, I think Representative Tanya Pfaff said, said it very well. It's a solution in, ter- in search of a problem. They couldn't even point to someone definitively who fit into this category. And the idea that you have hundreds of, of teenage boys lining up to get sex change operations and the trauma that that changes, I mean, the the changes that that means to their lives going forward, all to play high school basketball is ridiculous. I I mean, she is singling out people just to show that she is, again, part of the right, which is where the Republican Party is on this. And the Democrats were unanimous uh, on opposing this, as they should be because it does discriminate. And by the way, it only discriminates one way. It discriminates against boys who have the sex change operation become girls. What about the other? That does occur. Are we going to say it's okay for them to play? Or are they saying that women really aren't very good at sports anyway, so it really doesn't matter in that context? I mean, the whole bill is ridiculous. Um, And it again, all it does is stir up the Republican base to hate another group children who have their problems and have their adversity to face on their own without this additional burden. Mike O'Brien, fairness and competition is what we heard from the proponents of this bill. Are you buying that? Well, first, I don't, um, I don't think this is driven by hatred at all. I think it is driven by misunderstanding, fear, uh, concern for 
you know, what's happening in some some schools and the politics of this. Anne's wrong. This isn't far right. What's driving this are communities where that are traditionally moderate. They're purple communities around Indianapolis, largely that are that are driving a lot of the um, concern here where you have you do you have a very vocal transgender community. I think if if you went to places that we believe are, are transitioning from a Republican to a Democrat area, there may be purple uh, areas. Um, the, they, they were maybe, I think if you look at kind of the, just the, you know, political Venn diagram of these people, they were probably for gay marriage and against transgender athletes. Um, is this a problem and, you know, is a solution in search of a problem? It, there's no, there's no examples of this here. I do think representative Davis is correct that, that we're, we're heading that, we're heading that direction where this is going to be a problem. Um, to, again, Dan, I, I struggle with this. I was, I was um, way out in front, I think, on on uh, the gay marriage uh, issue. Worked with Chris Paulson, or respect the tremendous work she's done on behalf of this community. But I think you look at people who believe that they are not hateful, very reasonable, who look at this issue and say, "I just don't know about that yet." Nikki Kelly, oh, was you, you really Nikki- think that that's the motivating factor for for a sex change operation to play sports? I think if 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 it's hard enough to be a teenager. If you're a transgendered one is impossible. And so if you're going to go through that process, okay, so we're going to make it, we're if, you're, make if, you're it gonna, if, if you're going to go through that process, it's, um, you know, that's a monumental thing in your life. And I don't think playing men's basketball is the next thing on your list. Nikki Kelly, well, Nikki Kelly, as you heard, as we've heard now debate in the committee and then on the floor, are Republicans who are pushing this bill doing a good job of sort of indicating this is why, you know, these are the exact reasons why we need it. Well, I mean, they're focusing on one thing only, which is they're saying there's unfair performance edges, you know, that, you know, someone who is born a male, you know, has better lung capacity, taller, more muscle mass, things like that. They're focusing on sort of the advantages that that would give if they would then transition into a female sport. Um, the fascinating part about most of it was there there are examples out there that, have caused issues, but they're mostly in collegiate sports. And the bill originally covered college sports, and they just took it out without without a word of explanation. I mean, I think we can all surmise that the NCAA, who was headquartered here, was probably not a fan of it. But, but you know, that's the arena where we're seeing some of these issues happen more than in high school and, you know, middle school. John Schwann, as we've know, seen... There's not- John Shannon, we've seen. I was just going to say, there's nothing fair. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, uh, John, I I wanted to say we've we've seen other bills like this around the country. um, Some, quite frankly, a lot stricter than this one. Um, But a lot of those bills around the country have received a lot more national attention than I feel like Indiana's bill is getting. I'm not saying it's getting no national attention, but certainly not on the scale we have seen in several other states. Why is this one sort of flying under the radar? I think if Indiana had been the first state to address this in a legislative fashion, or at least through proposed legislation, it probably would have been a prominent national story. Uh, you know, we could get into discuss- discussions of why various editorial decisions are made and, and what constitutes news. But as each state wrestles with this, it probably becomes, I'm not saying it's any less significant to the people affected by uh, the potential the law, but in terms of it being a, a, a national news story, it, it, it starts to diminish a bit. Uh, and I think it's more, if you look at it narrowly about the coverage, coverage it has received, it's more about that probably than, 
than anything more uh, nuanced about, uh, you know, the, the fine points of the bill here or how it's being uh, debated. I want to just make one point. There's nothing fair about sports right now. If your parents have the money to put you on a traveling team and take you places and pay for summer camps for you to go to that, you have a tremendous advantage over kids whose parents don't have those resources. And nobody's worried about the fairness of that part of it, which I find really kind of ironic. I am surprised that Ann made the, made the point earlier about how the, the bill is crafted so it deals only with individuals who were born uh, genetically born as as males Man. and are transitioning to female, it does seem that uh, if, in fact, uh, this is all about fairness, uh, one could argue that the bill should be broadened, at least the, the language to say, you know, if you're competing outside the, the, the sports classification in which you were born. That, I mean, I could see people saying, well, this is picking, picking narrowly uh, defining the law in a way it shouldn't be. All right, well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question, and this week's question is, should transgender students be banned from participating in girls' high school sports? A, yes, or B, no. Last week's question was, will the General Assembly eliminate Indiana's license requirement to carry a handgun this year? This one was a little closer than I was expecting. Just 44% of you say yes, 56% say no. I suggest the chances are a lot higher than that, but we'll find out in the coming weeks. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org IWIR and look for the poll. Well, changes to an elections bill in a House committee this week will make it harder for Hoosiers to vote absentee by mail. The approved language that says, if you want to vote absentee by mail, you must attest that you won't be available on election day or, and this is the new part, any time in the 28 days before the election when early in-person voting is available. Republican Representative Tim Wesco. I believe the best policy is to encourage people to vote in person, whether on election day or in person early as much as possible. Democratic Representative Ed Delaney says that puts a greater burden on voters, particularly in counties with few early voting locations. And he questioned why the change is necessary. I think the answer is apparent. The answer is we want to reduce the number of voters, okay? Why don't you just say that? The bill is up for passage in the House next week. Mike O'Brien, I'm not going to be available on Election Day. Seems pretty straightforward. I'm not going to be available on Election Day or 28 days before Election Day. Why not just get rid of absentee mail-in voting entirely? I always thought this was a weird deal, this 20 because I, I always voted absentee or, or I'd vote in person early because so I was never available on election day because I was always working working elections and this was always, I said, you know, I, I might as well just take the easy way out here and, and um, now I can't anymore without just straight up being a, being a uh, violating the uh spirit of the law before and now the actual letter of it i think that was the point before that that you'd be unavailable to vote when given the opportunity in person i'm still a traditionalist that once i think we i would think we've made it widely and wildly available uh voting the last 20 years in this state contrary to what democrats think whether it was vote, vote centers or satellite voting or early voting for 30 days or vote on election day which is what we did to start and it wasn't that long ago that we we did that um we have vastly expanded opportunities to vote um, in this state. Frankly, I don't, ha- I don't have some ideological rigid opposition to, to mail-in voting. Um, th- as Tim Wesco said this week, we were, we've been living on the honor system in this state forever, and I think it's worked. 
both parties have their own operations that go and, and recruit their own voters to go, you know, encourage them to uh, vote absentee and vote early. Um, some people don't like that. They're traditionalists that want voting on election day, that the election ostensibly ends 30 days before um, election day for a lot of people. Uh, and campaigns sometimes don't like that. Candidates sometimes don't like that because the environment can change and this and that. Um, I don't think this was necessarily broken in Indiana, um, but I do think we've, contrary to what Democrats think, we have made it much easier to vote in Indiana over the course of the last 20 years. And Delaney, I know you disagree. I know you disagree with what Mike just said, but I want to ask about something he addressed, which, as he referenced, Tim Wesco also addressed, which is Indiana does this absentee mail-in voting largely on the honor system. Generally, you know, you're saying, "Yeah, I'm not going to be available." Nobody's checking this. So, is this really going to affect how voters vote? Well, I mean, you could have a situation where somebody finds out that the person who sent in an absentee ballot actually was present and has a grudge against that person. There are criminal penalties put in this bill. So if you change your mind or you think you're going to be here and you're, or you think you're going to be gone and it turns out you're here, I mean, there are all kinds of things where somebody could make trouble based on a criminal prosecution now. The honor system apparently is no longer good enough for this state representative, he wants criminal prosecution. But it's interesting that this came out the same week that the Civic Health Index came out. And Indiana, despite what Mike said, has gone from being 41st in the states among the states in turnout to 46th in the states. Years ago, years ago, we were in the top 10 in terms of turnout. Now we're not only in the bottom 10, we're in the bottom five. So we have not made it easier for people to vote. We have put repeated obstacles in the way of people voting. Those stats don't stat- matter. Your comparing statistics to have nothing to do with don't, Republicans don't want everyone to vote. Because what's the number one, what's the number one votes, factor in voter motivation? Win. And that's the problem. And the Civic Health Index itself shows how much we've slipped. I think, it show, I think it shows how we have no competitive Democratic Party in Indiana is what it well, shows. And, and know, because the number not? one reason to go vote is why because it's competitive. Not because of gerrymandering, not because you have terrible ideas. You walked into that exactly one, Mike. exactly because of gerrymandering. That's why there's no competition in those legislatures no because you've gerrymandered it so well. And that's you're a the third place. You're that's a third place party, Ann. You're a third place party. We have to go compete with other conservatives. You would think that you would be happy enough with the gerrymandering results that you wouldn't also have to restrict <laughs> registration and voting. But that's not enough for you guys. You're just absurd. You don't even believe in absurd. democracy. All right. John, no, John, John Schwannis. Believe in democracy. Do you feel like this is I, – I, I feel like I'm asking a similar question that I asked on the last topic. What is the need for this legislation? Probably no need. The motivation, I think, is cut and dried. Republicans want fewer people to vote. I mean, there is that is what this is about. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. It's uh, I agree with with Mike that ideally we'd all I love the tradition of everybody going to the polls on Election Day. In fact, you know, there was a bipartisan commission, federal commission. I think it was co-chaired maybe by Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter about voter turnout nationally. And they said, let's have a national holiday, state holiday. Let's make this something special that everybody looks forward to and marches to the polls together. I would love that, but we don't live in la-la land. Uh, it seems to me, uh, you know, well, we can debate uh, the, the voter security, but like we can't debate the motivation here, which is 
to reduce the number of people voting. I mean, that's pretty clear. And Nikki Kelly, um, Tim Wesco kind of indirectly um, cast some doubt on the safety and security of mail-in voting this week during that House committee. But is there any wide evidence of widespread voter fraud when it comes to mail-in voting? I mean, we have states who for two decades have been doing exclusively mail-in voting. Yeah, no, there isn't. I'm sure you can always find an occasional, you know, instance here or there. And sometimes it's on the Republican side and sometimes it's on the Democrat side. One thing I do want to note, this whole notion of the month, the entire month before you can vote, this 28 days thing. For a lot of counties, though, that, that you can't vote all 28 days. A lot of counties just have Saturday voting. So really, that's four days, additional days you can vote, not 28. So, you know, it really is a wide variety depending on where you live. Yeah, not just what days, but even what hours and things like that. You know, some days it's four hours in the morning or things like that. So, yeah, we should we should probably point out that Donald Trump relied on mail-in voting much of his life. I know certainly uh, in the last election he did. All right. Well, the, the, for it. The, uh, the Indiana House approved a controversial school content and curriculum bill this week. And Indiana Public Broadcasting's Jeannie Lindsay reports lawmakers passed the measure after more than an hour and a half of discussion on the House floor. Lawmakers made a few changes to House Bill 1134 before the House approved it. Bill author Representative Tony Cook says they aim to address concerns that the bill would add on to schools' workloads or prevent teachers from condemning racism. But concerns persisted from some lawmakers, like Representative Carolyn Jackson, about how the overall legislation could impact schools, especially as the pandemic continues. I think we need to step back and look at the situation before we create another obstacle and fall on our face. Many lawmakers opposed to the bill worry it could reduce the number of teachers willing to work in the state. The House approved the legislation 60 to 37. It now heads to the Senate. Now, Nikki Kelly, before they passed the bill over to the Senate, they also changed the bill in a nine-page amendment. And I think anytime you have a nine-page amendment to a, a piece of legislation, that's a good bill. But can you give us a sense of some of the changes that were made? Honestly, most of the changes were more tweaking. Like, for instance, it limits the damages that, you know, if you file one of these civil complaints, you can get. There was an example about your teachers having to post their curriculum. Well, you know, if they stumbled upon an article the night before, you know, do they they have to run immediately and post it before class or will they be in violation of the law? So they backed that down a little to, to be a little less... Um, I guess, onerous on that side. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's it's pretty much the same bill it's been the whole time. They are not interested in changing the divisive concept language in the bill, which is, you know, the whole reason there's division on, on the bill. John Schwannis, to that end, the Senate killed off its version of this measure. It said there was no path forward. That's what this, the very brief 4 p.m. on a Friday statement said. If there's no path forward on that bill, why would there be a path forward on this bill? Well, that assumes there is. Uh, I mean, I think the Senate can uh, maybe uh, split the difference here. I think uh, there's clearly enthusiastic support. And, we, and this is, you know, various bills have been introduced, some that deal with just narrow portions of this whole sort of reform package uh, with parental involvement and parental input. Others, uh, you know, are, are much broader. So what I think we could see come out of this is attempts at more transparency. 
you know, formalized posting of, of course lessons and course materials, curricula, uh, and, uh, you know, involvement, uh, mandatory involvement of the public in school board meetings in terms of uh, their opportunity to, to have a say without imposing, uh, you know, very specific, but still subject to debate, uh, guidelines about what can be taught uh, or the uh, review process. Because, I mean, we're focused so much about on, say, social studies and, and language arts, if you want to put it that way. But if you put the whole curricula uh, to an advisory panel that's empowered to say yay or nay, I mean, I could see biology classes, uh, you know, creationism versus uh, evolution creeping into this. I could see on the other side of the equation, when you have a personal finance class and students are given a fake pot of money to uh, learn how to invest in the stock market, there are people who say you're creating a, a you know, a bunch of cutthroat capitalists with no heart. I, this whole thing, it, it's it potentially, and that's a bit of an exaggeration, I'm sure, in terms of, of reality, but it, it does seem that uh, critics uh, are, are worried a lot about gridlock here and the, uh, the burden that would be created by this sort of multi-layered approach to curriculum approval. Michael Bryan, Michael Bryan if, if the Senate took out the divisive concepts language and, and we were left with a little more transparency from teachers in terms of what they have to post online and these um, parent sort of, or you know, these curriculum committees that parents would, would play a major role in at the, at the school board and school district level. If that's all the bill was left with, does this have a much easier path forward? Probably, but I think the goal needs to be transparency and not control for parents. Um, and take this off the teacher's plate entirely, you know, move this, move this entirely to a school board, you know, some kind of parental committee advisory role, um, but where accountability is to the elected school board members, ultimately, um, and, and let them, let them post what they, what the, let them direct the corporation to post what they want to post in, in the least onerous way possible. But putting the teachers in this situation, Nikki makes the right practical point. I mean, your teachers aren't prepping this stuff months in advance. They're, they're prepping it the night before it, you know, 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Um, once they get their own kids to bed and once they do, you know, do their own work, um, like every other parent's doing. So this, uh, in my opinion, this has got to be pared back significantly. And, and the emphasis has got to be on transparency if, that, if that's what parents want. And it's the, and it's the, the owners has got to be on the parents to actually do the, do the work to go ask those questions. A lot of them are doing that. They're doing it in a pretty hostile way. They ought to, I wish it was a little more thoughtful and constructive, but, um, you know, to put this on the teacher's plate is just is too much. And Delaney, to exactly what Mike just talked about, if the Senate changes the bill to be pretty much what Mike just indicated, taking it off the teacher's plate, focusing on transparency, but putting it on the sort of the school board, school district, and parent level, is that a good piece of legislation? Well, it's certainly a better piece of legislation. I mean, the idea that you're going to have thought control and you're going to have, a, a, you know, an equal approach to um, to any issue, no matter how horrific that issue has been in the past history of the, of the world, is ridiculous. And I, I agree with Mike. Uh, we've put enough burden on teachers. Uh, it, it, it is already uh, a difficult enough profession. It's made much more difficult by the pandemic. And now we're going to add another layer on that. It is, it's crazy. I mean, if parents want to have a curriculum advisory, advisory committee in their district where they can discuss it fine, but parents can already pick up the textbook. They can already talk to the teachers or email the teachers or text teachers and ask about the curriculum. There's not, there's no barrier to that now. And if they have a problem with it, they can go to the principal or they can go to the superintendent or they can go to the school board. Why the legislature has to get in the middle of issues 
where they can be dealt with on the local level is beyond me. And anything that puts more on the teacher's plate is a bad idea. Right. And with this bill and this concept, we're already the laughing stock of the country. So we're going to continue that at the same time we're trying to recruit new business into the state. Lots of luck with that. All right. Indiana legislative leaders indicated recently the General Assembly will likely hold off on any major anti-abortion legislation this session. Lawmakers want to wait for the U.S. Supreme Court to rule on the issue later this year before taking action. The future of abortion rights may be decided by the Supreme Court this year, and Indiana Senate President Pro Tem Roderick Bray says it's best to wait for the decision before passing legislation. To try and anticipate what that might say and draft legislation to, uh, to uh, anticipate every possible solution or um, uh, opinion that they can make come out with just looks completely undoable to me, so I don't think it's wise to try. But once the court rules, Bray says he might ask the governor to call a special session. I think we'll have a lot of people advocating that we don't want to wait any longer than we have to to, to, to make a change here in the state if there's a possibility. The court's rulings could mean everything from banning abortion outright to restricting how long into pregnancy people can access abortion care. All right, John Schwanis, we are almost out of time, so very quickly, though. Will GOP constituents for whom abortion is one of, if not the most important issue, be okay with this wait-and-see approach? They'll be disappointed, but the, if there were legislation, it likely wouldn't take effect until July 1st, uh, at the start of the fiscal year. And guess what? The Supreme Court's decision is expected in late June. So as a practical matter, it, uh, it makes sense to wait and see. And then Nikki Kelly, very quickly, uh, chances very high we'll have a special session later this year on abortion? Well, I mean, obviously, all depends on how that ruling comes down. But if they in any way give states more rights to curtail abortion, absolutely. All right. Well, that is Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwanis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir. Or, starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Stay safe, stay healthy, please get vaccinated if you can, and join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana's public broadcasting stations.